ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. It's a matter for the voice to make sure that they bring the critical priority areas to the attention of government and having our perspective on those matters that directly impact on our peoples will just add to the richness, I think, uh, of the legislation because it should improve what the government wants to do. So advice on the legislation is going to be really important. A date set for a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament and a major change to child detention laws in Queensland. I mean, these changes are absolutely scandalous. Can you believe that the Queensland government had to suspend um, the Human Rights Act to pass laws which are going to keep kids in concrete cages indefinitely? You've had hundreds of kids being kept in lockups, which are which are designed for adults to be kept for up to forty eight hours, but instead they've been kept in these lockups for weeks on end. I just can't believe that a government would legislate cruelty like this. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. A new report has warned governments are still making decisions that exacerbate disadvantage for Indigenous Australians. It comes three years after a landmark national agreement on closing the gap. The Productivity Commission's first review of the agreement has found some governments continue to make choices that disregard or contradict their commitments. It comes as Prime Minister Anthony Albanese reveals the date in which Australians will be asked to decide whether to recognise First Nations people in the Constitution through an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Auntie Pat Turner is someone who I personally admire. An Aranta and Gadanji woman born and raised in Alice Springs, she's been at the forefront of efforts to advance Indigenous affairs for almost half a century. As the chair of Coalition of Peaks, Aunty Pat is well placed to give us an insight into the current political landscape and how best to address issues of Indigenous disadvantage. Aunty Pat, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, you were at the big announcement in Adelaide for the date of the referendum. What was the atmosphere like? Well, it was electrifying. It was great. Everyone was so excited. The positivity was just bouncing around. So it was really a very energetic and positive launch of or announcement of the date of the referendum, which, of course, is the 14th of October, which is not very far and a lot of uh, work to do between now and then to sway all those undecided voters that it would be sensible to cast a yes vote. So, Ani Pat, that next six weeks, there was, as you mentioned, a lot of energy and um, excitement at the announcement. There is a lot of ground to cover in the next six weeks. From your perspective and where you're sitting, what will those next six weeks look like? What needs to happen? Well, I would like those undecided voters to really open their minds to the messaging that's going to come from the Yes campaign. Of course, I'm a great supporter of The Voice. I think there'll be real strength in us uh, having that and the recognition, of course, of our 65-year, 1,000-year 
occupation and, uh, and living in this country. And I think that it will show our maturity as a, as a nation. So that's what I'm hoping. Uh, people will open their minds to our messaging and will support us uh, on the 14th of October. Now, of course, you are the CEO of our huge peak in the health sector and the chair of the Coalition of Peaks. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've had over 50 years of working at the coalface. I think people would be really interested to hear from you, Arnie Pat, about what you think a voice to parliament will do to improve relations, particularly between the government and First Nations people. That has been a claim that has been made, but from where you sit, you would be well placed to judge that. So what's your view on that? Well, I agree that the voice will be there to give advice to the Australian Parliament. And, of course, it can advise the government and the executive. So I think that it's a matter for the voice to make sure that they bring the critical priority areas to the attention of government. And uh, government, of course and uh, parliamentarians will have their own legislation. Primarily that'll be brought forward by government members and having our perspective on those matters that directly impact on our peoples will just add to the richness, I think, uh, of the legislation because it should improve what the government wants to do so advice on the legislation is going to be really important. Ani Pat, one of the things that we um, have heard as we've spoken to people about this issue, whether wherever they sit on the question, is the observation that this has actually become, you know, quite a difficult space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, partly because of the level of um, racism that we're seeing, particularly in social media, um, people that are expressing um, views particularly in favour of the referendum are getting trolled. From your perspective, um, as somebody who works in the health sector, who has been very um, concerned about First Nations wellbeing, um, have you been shocked by this? And what can First Nations people and our supporters do as, as this environment um, becomes uh, so heated? Well, I think it's really sad and a sad reflection on our country that there is so much negative uh, trolling by naysayers. I think it is not an indication of the Australia that we really do know, which I think is much more concerned about fairness and, and equity. So I think it's a fringe group that are using their networks to promote this negativity. Any one of our people who is impacted by it and feels uh, vulnerable should immediately seek professional help. Through our community controlled health services, please go and speak to one of our health professionals and make sure that you are okay. You know, personally, I ignore it. Um, but I can't say that that's too easy for some of our people to do, especially if they're being trolled um, or their family members are being trolled. But I think it's a deliberate tactic to undermine the confidence of our people and our leaders. So we should just get on with standing up for what is right. And I believe that voting yes 
in the referendum is the right thing to do, not only for uh, what we have ahead of us right away, but for future generations as well. So having lived here and and our ancestors, you know, uh, 65,000 years minimum or forever, as a lot of our people care to put it, um, I think that uh, it's about time we were recognised in the Australian Constitution and we have the voice uh, that will stand in perpetuity, if you like, as long as the Constitution remains unchanged after the yes vote. Unlike every other uh, apparatus, if you like, that uh, the Commonwealth has put in place, supposedly for the benefit of Aboriginal people, that has largely, well, have all been abolished at the stroke of a pen or at the political whim of the new party after an election. And uh, all of that chopping and changing on electoral cycles is no good and uh, and we need to have some firm, ongoing presence to ensure that government is responding to the real needs of our people. You were the CEO of ATSIC and are now the chair both of our, as I mentioned, our, our major community-controlled um, health, health organisation, which is one of our key community controlled organisations uh, spaces, and uh, the chair of the Coalition of Peaks. So the argument that's put forward that says that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, when they are engaged in the policy making, delivers better results. What is the evidence that you've seen, given this long history of practical work in this field, that supports that statement that says uh, that when you listen to First Nations people or we're involved in policy making, that actually does make a difference? Well, the best example I can give you of recent times, but, you know, we do it all the time in working in close partnership with the Minister and the Minister for Health at the national level and his department. So our joint work on COVID-19 was probably the most illustrative example and world's best practice, actually, of governments listening and working in true partnership with us. So we estimated uh, we'd lose, you know, some 2,000 lives to COVID uh, when it hit. Rather, we lost... Uh, 235 people, and we're very saddened about that. But when you compare that to the Navajo, similar population size, they didn't mobilise their health services in conjunction with other health authorities like we did. They didn't mobilise that in the United States and they lost 2,000 Navajo to covid and they have very similar health conditions uh, and living conditions to our people. So that's an immediate contrast on how the Australian government worked in absolute sync, in full partnership with us, took on board our advice, responded by providing us the resources to support our 145 member services around Australia, and together because we asked the government to set up a joint management approach and they did. So, you know, I'm very proud of the work that 
the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector did to stop the deaths from COVID when it hit. But one of the points I do want to make, Larissa, about The Voice, as I reflect on the public debate, there is no one, no one, I repeat, disagreeing that our voices should not be central to the decisions of government that are mostly about us. So everyone accepts that. The naysayers accept it, obviously, you know, the governments accept it. It's reflected in the national agreement on closing the gap where the first priority reform is about shared decision-making between our people and government representatives. So no-one has disagreed that our voices should not be heard on those matters that impact on us, which is a, a point that I think people miss too easily overlook that. And it's sad, really, because it just feeds all of that misinformation, uh, unfortunately. Aunty Pat, you mentioned, of course, the uh, example of the response to COVID as a kind of uh, best example. The Productivity Commission's recent report sets out its findings and recommendations of areas for improvement and emphasising that more effort is needed to close the gap. What was your response to that report? Yes, well, the Productivity Commission report is looking at how the national agreement is being implemented. The Coalition of Peaks expected their report, because we've been saying it from the start, that all governments need to improve their efforts and lift their game uh, with respect to implementing the commitments they've already signed up to under the national agreement. You know, it requires a huge shift in the way governments work with our people and our communities. And, you know, it's a slow-moving beast, the bureaucracy. Nevertheless, it's three years down the track and uh, and the Productivity Commission draft report could not have made it clearer. And uh, they had very extensive consultations. They All of the parties to the National Agreement now have an opportunity to get feedback to the Productivity Commission before they release their final report uh, on the National Agreement by the end of the year. It's up to those governments who have got better examples of good practice on implementing the National Agreement to provide those and make sure that they are able to have them published by the Productivity Commission. So far, the key messages from the draft report were that there is some evidence that governments demonstrate an ability or willingness to partner in shared decision-making, but there's no change occurring and that accountability is limited and progress is falling short of envisaged expectations. Did any of these um, preliminary findings surprise you, Arnie Pat? No, uh, because I've been saying exactly the same thing to governments as I've been uh, moving around meeting with state and territory cabinets and I've only got two left and, of course, the National Cabinet earlier this year. So they had fair warning from me and then, of course, the Productivity Commission, which is an independent 
uh, agency has really reinforced what I've been saying. And the coalition, I only speak for the ADP because I don't speak for myself. So it's no surprise to any of us in the coalition of peaks. So the governments really just have to improve their implementation of the four priority reforms in the main. This is um, obviously a space where the federal government has a a big role to play and gets a lot of attention. But as you rightly point out, uh, state governments and territory governments are responsible as well for some of these key areas. We're talking about health, you could say that about education. We talk a lot about child the child protection issue, uh, criminal justice issues, etc. From what you're seeing as you go around and talk to different states about the importance of closing the gap and this agreement, what is the response that you get? Is there a sense that people are wanting to work together and it's not possible? Or is it the fact that each of the states is kind of their own world and so it's actually quite hard to get that kind of um, coalition of states and the federal government working in the same way? Well, you know, where we've seen pockets of change, which we have, as the report acknowledged, and things are being done in partnership, we've seen some real change. So, you know, I'm particularly happy with the work that Stake's been doing with Social Security and improving the space for families and children. So it's really important that our organisations have agency when they share in the decisions that uh, impact on them and the people that they provide the services to. So where our organisations have also been better supported to provide the services, we've seen an improved uptake in service delivery, but we have not seen the whole-scale implementation across all departments and the leadership uh, that's needed from each cabinet. So we believe that priority reform should be embedded into the decision-making processes of government, and this means that every First Minister and Treasurer should be asking their cabinet ministers how the priority reforms have been implemented when a new policy proposal is being brought forward, and a decision should not be made unless uh, they have been. And we need to see funding guidelines and processes change to reflect the priority reforms. So every single area of government needs to stop, examine their current approaches and align their business fully with what's provided for in the national agreement. Only Pat, one of the other areas that I think is part of this whole ecology really of of policy making and uh, service delivery is of course the public service and I'm reminded because I've known you for so many years that one of the things that you really championed because you were you know a bit of a trailblazer within the public service when you came in but you then were definitely breaking down barriers as the CEO of ATSIC and your role in running the in Centrelink and you know you've been the highest First Nation bureaucrat at different times. I mean, you're in a different sector now, but you really paved the way. And and during that time, you had a real emphasis on trying to build the capacity, particularly through ATSIC, of the number of Abor- 
Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people that were working in the bureaucracy. As you go around the country and you are working with departments and you're working nationally, what's been your reflection on um, how that's gone? What are the barriers? What would you like to see? And what have been some of the successes? Because it was a very important piece of, of all of the parts of the puzzle that you identified fairly early on as, as a place where we needed a lot more First Nations presence? Um, I haven't seen any other uh, agency do what I did when I was CEO of ATSIC and that was provide 10 scholarships for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island staff to do their undergraduate degrees at university. So that was 40 ATSIC uh, First Nations staff who went off to get their undergraduate degrees. There is now a program for postgraduate students to be supported by their departments. And ironically, that's through the Pat Turner Scholarship run by the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation. We've had a nice swag of uh, postgraduate students come through that. My take on... It runs hot and cold across the public service and I reckon that, you know, they slackened off a lot over the last 10 years and now they've got to get their skates on and and get moving again on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander recruitment and opportunities. So everyone's scuttling for staff now, but had they stayed true to continuing their efforts to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people got an opportunity to work in the public sector across the board, not just in Aboriginal affairs, uh, then they wouldn't be scrambling like they are now. So I'm pretty disappointed with the way the services handled the employment of our people. And I haven't seen much better in the states and territories, quite frankly, certainly not in leadership positions. Arnie Pat, no doubt you're going to be even more busy than you usually are over the next six weeks with so many more demands on your time. But I hope that we can stick with our usual speaking out tradition of having you on our last show of the year for Arnie Pat's year in review, because uh, there's there'll be a lot to talk about. And of course, today we haven't even discussed things happening overseas. So um, I hope that you can come back uh, later in the year and uh, do have the the final say. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Larissa. Much appreciated. Thank you, Arnie Pat, and thank you for all the work you do. Thank you. That's Arnie Pat Turner, CEO of Nacho, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation and CEO of the Coalition of Peaks. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. A major change to child detention laws in Queensland has caused concern amongst advocates and legal professionals over its potential to disproportionately impact First Nations kids. George Newhouse will join me shortly to unpack the issue in greater detail. We'll also discuss the findings of a coronial inquest in New South Wales surrounding the death of an Aboriginal teenager. Right now, though, some music from rock legends Coloured Stone. 
coloured stone there with I Wish I Was Living in Your Dreams, the song featured on their iconic 1985 album, Kuna Barock. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Queensland has a long history of overrepresentation of Indigenous youth in custody and now its government has passed laws allowing the detention of children for extended periods in adult prisons and police watch houses. When the sudden law change was criticised, the government responded that minors had been detained in these places for extended periods for 30 years. It wasn't anything new. The laws were just formalising the practice. A recent court case highlighted that it was illegal to keep children on remand in adult lockups, so the government had to either override the state's Human Rights Act or release the kids that were locked up. While this is unfolding in Queensland, we have a case on the New South Wales South Coast and another one in Western Australia, which I'm also interested in discussing with our guest, George Newhouse. George has worked for years in human rights law and is principal solicitor and co-founder of the National Justice Project. George Newhouse, welcome back to Speaking Out. It's great to see you, Larissa. Let's start with Queensland's new laws. What do you make of this change? I mean, these changes are absolutely scandalous. Can you believe that the Queensland government had to suspend um, the Human Rights Act to pass laws which are going to keep kids in concrete cages indefinitely? You've had hundreds of kids being kept in lockups, which are which are designed for adults to be kept for up to forty-eight hours, but instead they've been kept in these lockups for weeks on end. I just can't believe that a government would legislate cruelty like this. This isn't going to be an obvious question, but just for people that are, I guess, fixated on the issue of law and order and think this is an appropriate measure, why is it not appropriate for minors to be detained in adult prisons and police watch houses? Look, can I just say this before we go into why it's not appropriate. This law and order argument is just a furphy. This is about the failure of the Queensland government to provide um, adequate diversionary activities to keep kids out of the justice system and if they are going to arrest them, to provide them with appropriate accommodation. This is the government covering up their failures with claims of get tough on crime. But it's not appropriate for a number of reasons. First of all, Imagine a young girl in a police station without appropriate facilities to shower, get changed, uh, health care. These facilities are essentially a concrete box. There are animals that are being treated better than these kids. They are, there's no education. There's no proper health and, and rehabilitation facilities. It's just locking up kids in a box and it's totally inappropriate. For further context, in 2021, Queensland passed legislation removing the presumption in favour of bail for some children, which is actually something that happens around the country. Presumptions against bail become an increasing part of the legislative framework. Um, From your perspective, why is this impacting on First Nations children disproportionately? Um, How many kids are we talking about? How long has it been going on for Well, the statistics that I've seen indicate that hundreds of kids are being kept in these lockups and half of them are First Nations kids. Now, that is a gross over-representation. When you look at the proportion of First Nations people in our country, it's around 3%, and yet 50% of the kids being kept in these harmful environments are First Nations. And if you ask why, it's because police 
discriminatorily um, impose the law on First Nations people. They harass and target Aboriginal communities, and that's why you're seeing a disproportionate number of Aboriginal children ending up in these lockups. They're police lockups. The police are a funnel into the criminal justice system. Instead of working with community to divert children away from the criminal justice system, they're hoovering them up, hitting them with multiple offences and ensuring that they have a life of a merry-go-round of the criminal justice system. What should the Queensland government be doing instead to keep First Nations children out of these situations? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Any solutions must come from community, right? That, the Queensland government needs to work with each individual community and come up with solutions to keep young children out of the criminal justice system. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution. You need to actually hear the voices of community because they've got the answers. But funding diversionary activities making sure that there's uh, transport for kids to get to school. And uh, there's a million and one potential solutions, but the Queensland government aren't funding them. What they're funding is a jail system to cover up their failures of, you know, um, welfare support, housing support, uh, health support and education support for communities. So really addressing the underlying issues. In a nutshell, that's right. Yeah, if you don't under, if you don't address the underlying issues, you're just going to see more and more kids in this position. And of course, the consequence of that is, you guess you would have seen from your work that once a child is locked up in this way, they've got a high risk of staying in contact with the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, that's right. As I said, the police focus their attention on Aboriginal children and Aboriginal communities in in Queensland. And yet there are no resources or encouragement for the police to divert the children away from that system. And when they do come into contact with police, they don't just hit them with one offence. They fit fit them up with a string of offences. So each time they come before a court, they have multiple charges and it makes them look bad. This is a system that's designed to keep kids incarcerated as as young offenders and then to go on to adult prison. And the government would save an absolute fortune if they actually started to spend money diverting kids away and adults away from the criminal justice system by addressing the underlying issues. George, we've had you here before talking about the Mullaly case in Western Australia, which is a horrific case where a young baby was brutally murdered by a woman's partner and she and her father, the baby's grandfather, uh, had been uh, charged by the police as they were trying to get attention for this kidnapping. There have been some developments in this case. Can you just first of all fill in the gaps of the story that I've told for the things that people should remember about this case and its circumstances? Look, this is quite a traumatic story, so I want to warn your listeners. Uh, This was a situation where the West Australian police attended a brutal attack on um, Tamika Mullaly by her, her partner. The police, instead of supporting Tamika and caring for her, treated the victim as, as a criminal. She did not want to speak to the police. She did not have to speak to the police as a victim of a crime, but they harassed her until she lashed out and then they, 
basically continued an assault on her and arrested her and her father who'd turned up trying to stop the police from harming his daughter who'd already been brutalised. What's so horrific about this case is not just the way they treated uh, an innocent victim of a crime, but rather they left her baby behind at the scene of the crime where the perpetrator was able to come back and abduct the child. So the police were, in our view and the family's view, quite negligent in leaving a child behind at the scene of a violent attack. And then when the family did find out about the abduction of the baby, the police did not go and look for the child. Um, After the baby had been abducted and horrifically murdered, the police persisted with charges against Tamika and her father. And uh, it's taken nearly a decade to get some justice for the family. So we had uh, the Attorney General uh, of West Australia apologise publicly in Parliament to the family. That was about a year or so ago. And he also pardoned them. It was one of the last acts of West Australian Governor Kim Beasley to pardon both Tamika and her dad, Ted. Now, that only went part of the way uh, because the family still had ongoing race discrimination complaints against the West Australian government. And I can tell you that they have now resolved themselves. I can't reveal um, the details, but the family are happy with the response of the West Australian government in that regard. But there's still one outstanding matter, um, Larissa. The, The coroner, the state coroner of Western Australia refuses to investigate the death. We have gone to that coroner and on behalf of the family argued that there are serious issues about the way the West Australian police treat uh, First Nations victims of domestic violence and the safety of their children. I mean, this is a horrific case. George, another case you've been involved in recently I'd like to talk to you about because we do a lot in of coverage here on Speaking Out on the issue of um, Aboriginal children in out-of-home care and the importance of cultural connection and connection with family um, you've been involved with a case on the New South Wales south coast near Bermagui, Um and I'd just like to talk to you about the inquest findings that were handed down last week into the death of George Campbell, a Ewan Dungadi Tharawal teenager who was in the care of the Department of Communities and Justice when he was um, found dead. Um, how did you get involved in the case and what did the coroner find? Um, we were asked to get involved by the family because unlike a death in custody where the New South Wales Aboriginal Legal Service has funding to cover such inquests, there was no funding for a child who died in state care. So we felt that this was a really important issue because it's extremely rare to actually lift the lid of what happens to children um, in the Department of uh, Child Protection's care there are legislative prohibitions on the publication of their names and details about what's happened to individual children. But a death uh, in that environment actually gives uh, the world an opportunity to see what's going on because publication of an inquest finding is legally permitted. So we felt that it was actually important for the world to understand how First Nations children were treated by the system 
um, and in particular one that ended in such tragic circumstances. So, George, what were the findings of the coroner? The New South Wales State Coroner found that George required appropriate, careful and intensive supervision if he was to have a reasonable chance of achieving some measure of stability in his adult life. And the coroner drew attention to the failings of DCJ to provide George with culturally safe care that he really needed. She said, I acknowledge the concerns expressed on behalf of Karen Campbell, George's mum, and agree that a cultural plan is integral to the immediate and lifelong social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people and should actively facilitate their connections to family, kin, community, country and culture. Now, that was a, quite a profound statement about the failings of DCJ. The family go further. They say that if George had stayed with family members in kinship care, that he would have been alive today. So from their perspective, George should have stayed in community. If he'd stayed in community and not been fostered out, he might be alive today. George, I'm just wanting to um, get your thoughts on what it means when there is a coronial inquest that makes these kind of findings. Because I think people listening and hearing these circumstances would think that this must be a trigger for some kind of change. What is the consequence of a coroner making these kind of findings? Well, first of all, DCJ were put under the microscope. The Department of um, Justice were put under the Microsoft. They had to justify their position. They had to justify the actions that their team took. And they they acknowledged that there was a merry-go-round of, of, of um, carers. There was a lack of attention paid to George's needs. They weren't culturally appropriate. And they have indicated to the coroner that they're going to change their approach. Now, we are yet to see that in action but I think what a coronial inquest does in New South Wales is give accountability because they, uh, the, the department had to front up and explain to the coroner what had gone wrong and they were reasonably uh, open about that uh, and then indicate what they've done to rectify the situation. Now, as I said, um, we'll be watching to make sure that those changes are implemented and they actually do save lives in the future because the family believe that lives are at stake if culturally appropriate care is not provided to First Nations children. And, and they also don't believe that fostering children out of community is a way forward either. It's absolutely essential that family and community are supported financially and emotionally and with health and education resources to enable these children to live meaningful lives. I've mentioned that we cover this issue a lot on Speaking Out. It's very close to my heart. And uh, what you're saying seems to resonate with a lot of the First Nations people working in this space who really underline the importance of the First Nations community-controlled organisations in this space. Absolutely. And you've reminded me, that's an important point that the coroner didn't make, that these initiatives should be uh, led by First Nations organisations, that that would really help change attitudes. Unfortunately, it's all still in-house. But one day we might see First Nations organisations 
leading the protection and cultural safety of such vulnerable children. We've already talked about a fair bit of your work um, just in this small conversation, uh, but we've been looking um, through the show at the announcement of the referendum date. And I was just wondering if you could share with us how the work that we've discussed with you before on the Call It Out register might be relevant to people at this time. Well, I think that it's a really good point. It doesn't matter whether an individual wants to vote yes, no, or is undecided. There is uh, an outbreak of racism that seems to be permitted by this debate. And what Call It Out is doing, calliteout.com.au is a register where people can register acts of discrimination and racism. And if anyone sees racism on the internet, social media, television, based on, well, for any reason, but particularly based on this referendum, please report it. We work with Jambana Institute on the callitout.com.au and we will be reporting on the outbreak of racism around the referendum. So as I said, this isn't political. We're not advocating yay or nay. We're saying if you see racism, please report it. That's an important thing about the register that you've spoken to us about before. It's either you experience yourself or you see an act, you can register it. Absolutely. That's right. You don't have to experience yourself. And we encourage allies to report acts of racism as well. So if you see it or hear it or feel it, please report it and it will be processed through the Jambana Institute and reported on. George, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out. It is always striking when we chat that you work with the most difficult cases, really support First Nations families going through the legal system. So thank you for doing that work and for sharing your insights with us. Thanks for having me. That's Principal Solicitor at the National Justice Project, George Newhouse. We'll leave you with some music and what better way to end the show than with Uncle Jimmy Little and here he is with his classic Royal Telephone.
I got three gold records for that in 64. Thank you for buying the songs, Australian songs, Australian singers, Australian bands. We can't live without you, so thank you, Australian audiences. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. A couple of uh, quick Australian songs written by yours truly. And, uh, no, one of them is. Yeah. <laughs> My wife wrote one as well. show for this week. Join us again next week when we feature conversations from this year's Lowitcher International Indigenous Health Conference. I want to say to you today that inequality has a practice and all of these authoritarian shifts have a cumulative effect and it's not a matter of a crisis that will pass before everything goes back to normal. And that's, your, that's where your research is situated. So when we find these authoritarian shifts, it was in the Marbo, uh, just before the Marbo case, um, when Lowager Institute came into being as a research institute, we had to fight with research methodologies. Linda published her book. We were publishing in the Pacific. We had to fight to get access to the academy. We've, won, we've pretty much won the research argument uh, for methodologies. And I think you're here to benefit that argument you don't need to worry about that argument. Yes, it's still ongoing, but I think we need now to start to look at the, the, the future of what is the health challenges of the future and today. So when I, when I see authoritarian shift, I go back to the historical record as an academic and I go back and I read, and I just wanted to point to you before I get into my, my real um, presentation today. Um, uh, four books that I generally go to and I reread them over and over and over to help me frame my when I see authoritarian shift um, and uh, Robin Kelly's work your mama's dysfunction when authoritarian shift occurs generally what happens is the nation state tends to try and look to blame somebody and it's always your mama's dysfunction yeah it looks to blame somebody and when we do our research, we have to resist these tendencies, these tropes to, uh, the, of the nation state to always blame somebody for the economic crisis that they've created. So Your Mama's Dysfunction is a really interesting read and you should have a look at it. The second book that I tend to sort of um, uh, go to is Hannah Arendt's uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. Hannah Arendt says the banality of evil. So after the Holocaust, she was fascinated with how did the Holocaust occur? This wasn't just a single event that happened overnight. A, a society was trained into thinking this way and that it was seen as benevolent, that it was in the, in the interest of human beings to do this. 
Why is it in the interest of human beings for our Prime Minister to spend all of our Australian money on six submarines when health workers' rights and wages are below in the poverty line? This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.